Jim Crane, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. You're studying energy policy here. You've written a, a book on Dubai. Tell me a little bit about your reading of the Arab Spring and what's happening or happened in Egypt and what's happening in Libya now. Well, we're seeing uh, uh, quite a bit of unrest uh, and effects on, on energy prices. We're seeing some long-serving leaders uh, face the wrath of their people. And uh, there's all sorts of uh, implications around the Arab world. Uh, the, the result, the, the, the unrest is spreading uh, even to the, to the Gulf, to some of the monarchies that people had, uh, had thought uh, were more immune to this type of stuff. Now, I know today we're hearing in the news that Colonel Gaddafi's troops have captured uh, more of the rebel cities in Libya. But you happen to think, having studied Libya, that, that actually it's in a different position to the other Arab states. Why is that? Well, it's, it's not a monarchy. So the countries, the oil-rich countries in the Gulf are all monarchies. Uh, these countries have uh, ruling families that pass the rule from one to another uh, and they, they seem to have a bit more flexibility in their, in their uh, style of, of governance than does Libya, which is a republic. So in Libya, the ruler is theoretically supposed to treat his citizens as interchangeable, as uh, citizens with equal rights. In the Gulf monarchies, uh, rulers don't do that. Uh, they, they, they treat people with favoritism. There are, uh, their own families uh, first. Uh, you know, these are the ruling families, or some, some, some of them are royal families even. Uh, and then on down from there, uh, people get treated, certain tribes get treated with the favoritism. There are certain merchant families that have, uh, have, have special favors or special rights. Uh, and, and citizens in Gulf countries, in the, in the monarchies, don't tend to band together uh, to form interest groups like they might in a republic, say, like Libya. Uh, instead, an individual, if, if he's looking for something, would, would approach the monarch directly. So you go to the sheikh's majlis, for instance, uh, make a personal request on behalf of you or your family, uh, and then hope for a favor. Uh, that uh, gives the monarch a, a, a lot more flexibility uh, with which to rule and, and, and to potentially co-opt his population, use his oil or hydrocarbon revenues to, to bring stability to his country. These are some of the things that uh, uh, the republics that we've seen undergoing unrest haven't been able to do as effectively. But in Libya, they've given sort of energy grants, grants to the population. Some might say bribes. Others might say an egalitarian sharing of the wealth, even since the unrest uh, of recent weeks. You know, there have been more grants to the population. Do you you think that that will help, if you like, to quell feelings of disquiet? In some countries it does, and it has, and we're seeing it happen. In Kuwait, for instance, in Qatar, for instance, uh, these countries are are increasing the the amount of uh, subsidies or handouts that the population gets. In Libya, it seems like it's a little bit too too late for that now. Um, you know, you, Libya is a, in an interesting case because unlike Egypt, it's got a small population and relatively large reserves of hydrocarbons per capita. Whereas in Egypt, it did have a bit of hydrocarbons, but uh, but it was a small amount compared to a huge population. So the, the Egyptian government had a, had a lot less wherewithal to to combat uh, unrest, whereas Gaddafi has more uh, at his disposal. Uh, but potentially he, you know, he was prevented or he wasn't able to use it in a similar manner as, uh, as some of the countries in the Gulf. But, but the army is, is the key factor, isn't it? In Egypt, the, the army stayed impartially initially. Uh, the army hasn't been impartial in Libya. That's true, too, of course. Um, I think you know, at the end of the day, it's probably more of a hearts and minds 
exercise than, than, than using a repressive instrument like the army to, to go out there and, uh, and bring, bring order. I mean, if, you're, if your people, uh, if their hearts and minds aren't in it, uh, you're going to have a tough time. You'll wind up, uh, you know, if you do keep power, if Gaddafi does manage to keep power using the army, his country might start looking a bit more like, uh, say, like Iraq uh, in the end where, um, you, know, he had the, uh, you know, the ruler has to use extreme repression to, to keep power. That wouldn't be good for the international reputation either. But, but looking at these Arab states now, looking at what's happened in Egypt and Libya, you lived in Dubai, you haven't just written a book, you've lived there as a journalist. Do you think the West misreads these situations and, and the, the West, if you like, can't interpret them because they're coming from a, a different historical perspective? We just don't understand their way of life. You see a bit of this. There's certainly misconceptions uh, in the West about the Arab world. I mean, uh, and stability is one of them. I mean, some of these places are extremely stable. For instance, Dubai, where I lived, uh, it has a uh, uh, the ruling family that's been in power has been in power since 1833. They've passed power uh, from father to son, or from brother to brother, or uncle to to uh, to, to nephew, for 135 years, something like that, and. Uh, it's been unbroken. There hasn't been a single coup or palace murder or anything. So in that same period of time, if you think about the United States, there's been four presidents assassinated. Okay, So the United States has under, undergone much more political unrest uh, and governmental unrest, uh, if you will, than, than has Dubai. Okay, But some of the countries right next door or across the Gulf uh, are, uh, are seriously unstable they've had uh, have had much more uh, uh, you know upheaval and unrest do you think then there's anything to be said in gaddafi's favor i'd be hard pressed to think of something in his favor right now i mean you know even if he does regain the initiative and and, and bring his country uh, uh, you know re- reunited i mean he's got a sort of breakaway province in the in the east if he can if he can bring it back together well uh, you know he's he's going to need a lot of repression i you know i i can't see him uh, being the guy to run that place uh, going forward for, you know, for the long term. If we now switch to the impact on the price of oil, is this a blip? Some would say that the oil companies do make contingency plans that they're passing on, uh, if you like, hiking up prices to the consumer when they could bear these losses themselves. How do you read the, the energy implications of the price of oil now? Well, there's a lot of fear priced into the oil price right now. Um, I wouldn't like to, to, you know, to make a prediction about uh, where it's going to go in the future, but uh, unrest in the Middle East tends to push the price of oil up. So if, if, if we see this continuing, oil prices will, may still stay high, especially if there's, a, if there's a, a, a chance for unrest to spread to Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's the, that's the big question. Now, unrest in the Middle East also has a sort of a a self-healing property through the oil price. So when, when there is unrest and the oil price rises, the regimes uh, that, uh, you know, that may be seeing this unrest are also getting an extra influx of cash uh, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, increased oil revenues. So they've got a little bit of extra wherewithal uh, with which to, to combat this problem. So it's, uh, you know, these self-healing properties, you know, if it goes on long enough, may, uh, may actually provide uh, some of the solution. If we look to the long-term recovery prospects for the West now, the price of oil, uh, the instability in, in the Arab regimes, it's going to make any recovery shaky, isn't it? Because clearly this situation of unrest in the Middle East isn't going to resolve itself quickly. 
It, that's a, it's a tricky question. It's anyone's guess. I mean, I, I would say that, uh, you, know, it, you know, the high oil price isn't going to help Western economies. Inflation is, 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 is going to be a result if the oil price stays high. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, in the long term, uh, dealing with a, a democracies in the, in, in the Middle East rather than autocracies like we have now may be in the West's long-term interest. So we'll see. And, and Jim Crane, you're studying energy here at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Do you think it will necessarily make the world wake up and decide, well, we've got to get these green technologies online quicker, we've got to adapt quicker, we've got to have electric cars? This is a wake-up call to the West. Well, when, when the oil price breaches $100, yes, you can say it's a wake-up call. And, and all these technologies that, that were in, you know, in, the, in the closet tend to come out and uh, become viable when, when, oil, when oil is expensive. Anything that can, that can replace oil becomes, uh, uh, you know, at a certain price becomes viable now. So, uh, uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah, it'd be nice. Jim Crane, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks.